So obviously, you know, Iowa has kicked off the primary process for like the last 50 years. Yeah. Um, and as someone who was born in the 90s, like I've just never really thought that much about the order and whether it's right or whether it could be changed. I mean, it, it was always just sort of like, okay, the, you know, the, prim- the first primary is in Iowa, <laughs> the capitals in DC, Pluto is a planet, like, <laughs> you know, next. Yeah. And I guess I'm wondering if we could start out by just talking about why that sort of thinking is so naive. I mean, clearly the order is so important. You know, why should we not just take it for granted that this has been happening in Iowa for so long and, you know, it's now going to be happening in, in South Carolina? Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there is a, um, there's a lot of, you know, kind of interesting sentimentality among among political reporters for the specific uh, experience of Iowa and, and New Hampshire. And, you know, it is, especially for reporters and for like the very few voters who are there, uh, nice. You know, you are in a country of 350 million people, you know, cloistered in little rooms with a few dozen people listening to, and in some cases sort of challenging people who aspire to run the world. That's my colleague, Benjamin Wallace-Wells. I'm Tyler Foggett, and you're listening to The Political Scene from The New Yorker. The Democratic Party upended their primary schedule for 2024 this week. South Carolina will now go first, giving more deciding power to Black voters. Is this an attempt to realign the Democratic Party's priorities or a reward for the state that pushed Biden to the presidency in 2020? Thank you, thank you, thank you, South Carolina! My buddy Jim Clyburn, you brought me back! Benjamin Wallace-Wells has spent a lot of time doing deep coverage of presidential primaries for The New Yorker. I'm interested in this idea of um, these candidates being able to sort of like personally charm individual voters in Iowa. Do you think that's going to be harder to do in a state like South Carolina? I mean, you know, no is is the is the broad answer. South Carolina is not that much bigger. Uh, it's warmer, so you can have longer, longer, and more pleasant events. You know, and chat with more people after them. But you know, I think that in in this particular case, the very few signs of sort of resistance to this proposal, and I think it's interesting that there have been so few, uh, are about how closely Joe Biden is identified with the with the political leadership in South Carolina and where, you know, Jim Clyburn, the central political figure in democratic politics in the state, is probably his his most important ally. I mean, I feel like Clyburn, um, I mean, he's just such an, uh, sometimes I just get the impression that he like has almost more political power than than anyone else. I mean, I think that in order for Biden to get Clyburn's nomination, he had to agree to, um, you know, nominate a, a black woman to the Supreme Court. Clyburn has sort of gotten Biden to do a lot. This might be like an extension of that. I, I mean, I mean, I'm I'm sure it it didn't escape Biden's notice that this is something that would make Jim Clyburn uh, very happy. But I also think it's it's worth keeping in mind that like you know we're not really in the in the old machine days of of politics from earlier this century uh, from earlier in the last century. And, you know, Joe Biden had to win the support of voters in, in South Carolina um, in exactly the same way that Pete Buttigieg had to win the support of voters in Iowa um, and Bernie Sanders in New Hampshire, you know, for various reasons, because uh, the black church in South Carolina is seen as such a, a key part of uh, the coalition there. Because South Carolina's process can be described as if it's sort of top down. Um, but I think that, you know, as we're now seeing, Biden is turning out to be a, a pretty formidable political figure as president, you know, and, and, uh, you know, the reason that, um, voters in South Carolina, uh, wanted him may not have been so fleeting or, or particular. They, they may have been rooted in the fact that he had a, a, a reasonable idea 
uh, for where the party needed to go. So there's almost no question in my mind that there's some element of kind of favor doing or quid pro quo that, that has pushed South Carolina to the front of the line. I also think that like we can tend to describe the politics of South Carolina as if they're more top down than, than they actually are and in, in ways that underserves the, both the voters there, but, but also, uh, Biden himself, who, who's, you know, victory in the primaries was, you know, not just the consequence of his his being Obama's vice president or, or you know, having a lot of relationships, but also, you know, a kind of endorsement of his his uh, his vision for governing. Yeah, I mean, this change also seems like, um, you know, at least in some way, like, like it's um, sort of in a part of a larger attempt for the Democratic Party to redefine itself or like sort of redefine who the, the kingmakers are in the party. Um, like, I mean, looking at you know, South Carolina and also um, Georgia and Michigan, which have been moved up on the primary calendar. It seems like this is part of a larger effort to give black voters more voting power or more, you know, deciding power in terms of, you know, who the the candidates are. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, there's no question that like the the main way that this has been discussed, you know, in the public and and among, you know, Democratic operatives and and politicians um, is that we need our nominating process to look more like America. And I think in the case of Michigan, uh, it's not quite as stark, you know, and the difference isn't really like racial, uh, as it is with, with South Carolina and Georgia. But, you know, I think there's, there's a, a recognition there that, uh, working class voters, uh, need to be the future of the party, that the party can't be just, you know, a kind of operation of, of coastal college educated voters. Um, and so, you know, a little bit of a nudge to a very slightly blue state in Michigan, uh, kind of makes sense. There is also a way in which a kind of more moderate politics sort of begins to come to the fore. Uh, if you think about traditionally Democrats from um, Michigan, from South Carolina, from Georgia, you know, this is not California or New York or Massachusetts. It's not the party's, uh, you know, sort of liberal alliance. Um there is a very Bidenish sensitivity that's built in here and, you know, may outlast him. Um, that says, uh, even if we're moving away from these like highly specific nominating contests in, in, in Iowa and New Hampshire, we want to be sure that we have our eye on, uh, sort of the median voter. You know, what issues do you expect this, um, this median voter that you, you mentioned, um, to care most about it? I feel like the over the years, like sort of, you know, the Iowa caucus kicking things off has resulted in candidates having to, you know, sort of put certain things on their platforms or answer certain questions that they might not have to um, in another state. Like I remember, you know, when Ted Cruz was running, there was it was such a big deal that he was, you know, anti ethanol subsidies, and I think he was like maybe one of the first candidates ever um, to be anti those subsidies and and still win in Iowa. I was wondering if maybe the the new version of that in in South Carolina and also just given Georgia and Michigan also being bumped up on the list is um more candidates potentially bringing up reparations as part of their platform or other more specifically racial justice type measures? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know about, about reparations. That is, things have been quiet on that front for a little bit. But I, I do think that as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, the questions of policing, of, of racial justice in, in policing um, don't feel resolved and are, I think, going to continue to be significant. And I think, um, yeah, I think that like elevating... South Carolina and Georgia does suggest that, yeah, you know, racial issues will, will, will continue to be central. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think that one thing that, that happened with Iowa is that it became entrenched, you know, and there mm-hmm. became like an entrenched politics to it. And everybody from, you know, Barack Obama to Hillary Clinton on down the line had been told what was needed to do to appeal to Iowa voters. I, I, I think my hope for, you know, this change in the in the presidential nominating calendar is that it doesn't necessarily institute South Carolina as the kickoff state for all time but that it gives the party a little bit more um, of a sense of freedom, that it can change things and move things around uh, each time. rotation, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I, I think that South Carolina at some level reflects, you know, just this desire to keep um, some element of sort of uh, in-person, sort of, you know, rural kind of campaigning. Um, but, you know, there's no reason it has to be South Carolina, you know, the, the, the party changed it with a, with a simple vote. There's no reason it, it, it couldn't do that again, uh, in four years. So I, I do think that like one thing that became, um, you know, sort of apparent over the last decade and, and that ethanol issue in particular was striking, even as, you know, you, every time you drove out to Iowa, you saw these huge windmills going up, you know, it's a, a, a big, uh, a big center for, for wind energy it was just that, you know, things can get stale. Uh, political ideas about how to win in a place can get stale. It's good for the party. It would be good for the Republican Party, too, to shake it up a little bit. And right now, the Republicans have not announced any changes. Have they even announced that they were, like, you know, sort of looking into making changes? Or does it seem like they're going to stick with their schedule? As far as I know, they're sticking with their schedule. Um, they're not yeah. changing the first date to, to Florida? <laughs> not yet, though. Oh, maybe soon. Uh that will be interesting, though, because on the Republican side, Ted Cruz was a guy who played very well in Iowa. Uh, Iowa had, you know, for several decades, a very, very strong evangelical conservative component to its politics. And I remember in 2016 seeing Cruz go from little church to little church and really whip up crowds and uh, have people, you know, lining up, uh, you know, long, long lines of cars waiting to get in to, to see Ted Cruz. Now, Ted Cruz would have been a disastrous nominee uh, for the Republican Party in, in 2016. You know, there, there's plenty of reasons he, he couldn't build on, on Iowa and turn that into a national victory. But, you know, I, I do think that the Republican Party could also take a look at the way it structures its, uh, its calendar and the kinds of politics that, that that amplifies and ask whether that's good for the party. But no, I think that like the Republican Party right now is so caught up in the in the Trump DeSantis dynamic that I think that um, any bigger structural changes will, will, will probably wait for a different cycle. We'll have more with Benjamin Wallace-Wells in just a moment. Next week, The New Yorker is publishing our second online-only interviews issue, featuring conversations with leading figures in politics, literature, and the arts. Check it out starting February 13th on NewYorker.com. Um, you mentioned the word rural earlier. Um, you were saying that these changes will sort of give more power to rural voters in South Carolina. And it's interesting. So, so New Hampshire is very, it seems very opposed to the changes that are being made. And, um, you know, I, I read something, it was um, some politician in New Hampshire who was saying, well, you know, it's important to have, um, you know, the first primary be here because we represent rural voters. And I think it was Clyburn who said, what are you talking about? I represent rural voters too. Yeah. Um, 
which to me sort of implied that, like, it seemed like Clyburn was sort of pushing against this idea of, like, rural almost as, like, a euphemism for, like, white working class voters. Sure. Um, and so I'm wondering about this, like, this question of, um, you know, whether the Democratic Party is, you know, seemingly trying to align itself with its black voter base versus potential white working class voters. When the parties are looking at how to order the the primaries, it, it seems like it's almost— um, they're almost in a position where they're picking, you know, specific cohorts or figuring out who they want to prioritize in a way. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, um, I find it a little hard, you know, as somebody who lives in Boston and uh, has been to so many political events in uh, New Hampshire over the years and often feel like I'm seeing so many of the same faces uh, in the crowds. Uh, I find it a little hard to have a ton of sympathy for New Hampshire here. It's had a great run. I do think the Democratic Party is trying to make a point about what image we conjure when we talk about working class voters, what image we conjure when we talk about rural voters, and to say, you know, it doesn't look the same uh, as it did on campaign billboards in 1954. Uh, A ton of the um, American working class is not white. um, And as a party, uh, it's essential that that the Democrats appeal to those voters and sort of... um, not to be too jargony, but but center them. <laughs> um, I think that you know um, the party is is very cognizant of the way in which um, you know cities in the South um, are growing, are becoming more progressive, and give it a chance to sort of begin to tip the map a little bit. Do you think that's what's happening here? Because I, I was wondering about um you know South Carolina, which um, although it's you know sort of it's more diverse and it's more blue than. Than Iowa. I mean, yeah, it's, it's not, not going to vote you know, for a Democrat. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even um, Georgia to some extent, although it's, you know, it's becoming more blue as we speak, it's, um, these aren't like, you know, just sort of ironclad blue states. Yeah. I think that, that Georgia, North Carolina, and certainly Virginia are all states that President Biden would think he has a decent chance in next time. He won Georgia and Virginia last time, um, Virginia pretty handily. So, yeah, I think that like, South Carolina is like a, a, you know, makes sense as a way to marry um, the kind of growing political importance of and and the growing flippability uh, of the Southeast with this kind of local ideal. I I also just, you know, want to underscore here what a different context we're talking about all this in than we might have talked about um, a year ago. Uh, We're in a Democratic Party where, you know, Biden is all of a sudden coming out of the midterms virtually unchallenged. And, you know, there are articles that will appear in the Washington Post or or the New York Times, you know, every now and then quoting uh, Democratic operatives and aides worrying about a Biden candidacy. But now it's all about his age. And a year ago, it was about his performance, uh, whether he was too centrist, his perceived ineffectiveness. And so we are heading into a presidential nominating contest, um, or we will be relatively soon, uh, in which Biden is in just an extraordinarily strong position uh, and one that, you know, very few political observers would have expected him to be in, you know, a year or two ago. And so to me, you know, the stakes are a little lower for these questions. Like, does this calendar kind of weight the presidential nominating contest towards Biden? Probably a little bit, you know. Um, Will that matter now, probably not, because he probably won't have serious opposition, or at least it doesn't look that way right now. Um, and so, you know, um, th- th- there, there is a way in which, you know, some of the critiques that uh, we've heard about, um, uh, you know, 
South Carolina kind of coming to the fore, um, just have a little bit less in the way of, of teeth or stakes uh, than they might have in a slightly different environment in which the Democrats had performed more poorly uh, in the midterms, in which the economy was, was you know, uh, was, was not recovering uh, as, as well as it has recently, uh, and in which Biden's, you know, just general political position was, was more degraded. Um, but, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, a man who will be, you know, into his 80s uh, when he's re- running for re-election, and who was thought to have a politics that were sort of out of touch with where the Democratic Party was was headed not very long ago. Um, this is just a pretty formidable place uh, for Biden to be in. And, you know, the comparative ease with which these changes in the calendar have been sort of foisted on the party, I think, reflects that. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about whether this is like sort of personally strategic for Biden in some way. Uh-huh. Um, and... You know, I'm, I'm trying to think about like the ways in which that could be possible because you know, as we as we discussed, um, it doesn't look like the primary is going to be contested, um, and it also seems like you know he already got Clyburn's endorsement. Clyburn's also very old, kind of on his on his way out. It seems like um, so. I'm not sure what else he has sort of left to gain from that. Um, you know, continued association. And so, you know, what, one thing that I was thinking about was, um, you know, is this Biden helping sort of set the stage for um, a potential run from Kamala um, if, if he himself decides not to run? Um, is there is there something else that could be going on here? Um, I, I'm just curious about, you know, sort of what, you know, what theories you you might have or you, you think might actually be um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, sort of viable. I'm, I'm laughing a little because I remember, uh, you know, being in South Carolina um, and talking with Biden, uh, campaign officials there who were absolutely confident that they were just going to eat Kamala's lunch, uh, among voters there. Uh, and they absolutely did, you know, so, she so clearly, the- no, 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 she, she dropped out before, before we got I see, to, so this we was got just to, like in the polls. Yeah. Just in the polls and in, you know, the size of her crowds and, you know, if, if there, I, I think there's no question that if, if Kamala Harris had been able to win stronger support in South Carolina, she would have stayed in the race, uh, at least through that state. That was for her campaign, a real marker from the beginning. So maybe it'd be different now, though. I mean, I think that you could argue that part of, you know, the reason why Biden was so popular in South Carolina was because of his association with Obama. And now that Harris is associated with Biden, yeah. it's almost like, you know, by transitive property, um, you know, she's maybe she'll she'd do better there. Maybe. And, you know, it's possible that, that, that Kamala has an act in her that, you know, the national press is not, is not seeing. But, you know, my instinct, uh, without having reported on this a ton directly, my instinct is that the, the commitments from Biden, that Biden's trying to show here are more general. You know, it is to, yes, absolutely, uh, you know, Southern voters and Black Southern voters in particular, uh, as a crucial part of the Democratic coalition. It is to the politicians um, who organize those voters uh, as big figures uh, in the party going forward. But I'm not so sure that I would draw a direct line from uh, this decision, you know, to a Kamala Harris candidacy. If he really wanted to boost Harris, he would have made the first primary state California, where she's from, where she still enjoys, you know, uh, yeah. a big network, um, you know, and so on. So, you know, I think that like one thing that's been interesting in democratic politics over the last couple of years is that we are seeing a, a new generation of leaders come up. I think Raphael Warnock is going to be a big figure in the party going forward. You know, he's from right next door. 
um, Atlanta is increasingly, you know, just the center of, of democratic political activity. Part of South Carolina is in the Atlanta media, media market. So, you know, my instinct would be, um, yes, this has a lot to do with Clyburn. It, it has a lot to do with, you know, 2020, but, you know, there are also more general commitments, um, that Biden has and a kind of more general loyalty that I think he's trying to show here. Yeah. I mean, how do you see, um, you know, sort of the, the newfound emphasis on South Carolina and Michigan and Georgia changing um, just sort of local politics within those individual states? That's an interesting question. I, I, I don't know that I have an answer to it. I think the bigger change is just what cities and places the political country sort of starts thinking about at the outset of this. It will be interesting uh, to see Atlanta for up close for a few weeks and to see rural Georgia as well. It will be interesting to see Detroit, uh, to see Flint up close uh, for a few weeks, um, to ask questions about what happened uh, to the supposed drift in Michigan uh, of kind of allegedly left behind post-industrial cities uh, to Trumpy Republicans. Why is it that Democrats have captured both houses of the legislature in that state this year and reelected uh, their governor, uh, Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer, by a wide margin. Um, there will be a, a, a subtle but interesting change in, um, you know, what stories are told uh, at the outset of the presidential campaign, uh, what issues the candidates get asked about again and again, uh, what kinds of people and what what people specifically they're they're compelled to to interact with and confront. You know, um, I do think that the basic importance of this choice is just, you know, it's narrative. It's just what we see, what we talk about um, at the beginning of this incredibly exhausting, draining, convoluted campaign. Um, one thing we haven't talked about so far, but, you know, these are, you know, for me, I think for a lot of political reporters, the most interesting parts of the campaign, you know, um, for operatives too, you know, everything is kind of wide open. Everyone's still full of hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> still some optimism left in the process, you know, and the, the scenery does matter. You know, the candidates do interact with, uh, with people with issues, with local reporters and, and, and the concerns they raise. And, you know, the beginnings of these campaigns are often, um, yeah, like the, the most hopeful, but also the most dynamic parts of them. And, you know, by the time you get to the conventions, to the debates, you know, you kind of know where everybody everybody stands. And, and at the outset, you're sort of seeing it fresh. And so uh, to be seeing that in a different context, maybe, maybe it won't make a difference, but, you know, uh, it does seem to me like not unlikely that, that it will. Um, yeah, no, it's something to look forward to. I mean, at the very least, at least, um, you know, we won't have all these videos of candidates crowding together at the same inn um, <laughs> in Iowa City. <laughs> Drinking those pie milkshakes. Um, yeah, I'm ready to see what South Carolina has to offer. Let's do some barbecue. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Sure. Yeah. Anytime. Benjamin Wallace Wells is a staff writer at The New Yorker, where he covers American politics. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show was produced by Michelle Moses with help from Sydney Cobb. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.